Welcome to Exit Point. If you're joining us for the first time, this is a podcast that delves into the minds of base jumpers, wingsuit pilots, and adventure sports professionals with the intention of extracting lessons and insight. In this episode, we have Matt Blank interviewing Jay Maletsky, commonly known as JMO. JMO is one of skydiving's foremost canopy instructors, and we brought him on to talk about his history as a test pilot, his experience pioneering high performance canopy flying, and some of his training tips that we can use to improve our own canopy skills for the base environment. So without further ado, let's get JMO on the track. What was your introduction to flying parachutes? I made my first jump at a small drop zone in uh, Ontario, Canada. And while I was taking my first jump course, there was a young man uh, who was a pretty beefy fella and he was coming in on a stiletto 120 and doing these aggressive 180 degree front riser hook turns and it just made me get all wide-eyed i'd driven there on my motorcycle at you know 200 kilometers an hour and saw this guy come (laughs) screaming in under this little tiny 120 stiletto and i was like what is that i want to learn to do that so, uh, what was the early progression that you went through? Did you do static line, free fall? What was the first, like, what was your first, um, you know, real experience, uh, learning to fly a parachute? Yeah, I did the static line progression. I started off with the Cessna drop zone, the small drop zone in the country, you know, and we had the static lines for 15 jumps and then you would do progressively longer free falls. And I moved on to my own equipment at about 20 jumps and started off with a old fury and a round reserve and i downsized from a 220 fury to a 120 jedi in one step <laughs> okay we're gonna get to that um <laughs> I'm, I'm particularly interested before we move on as to like you know what the climate was like for learning how to uh learning how to fly a parachute at the time you know, what was uh, the instruction that you received before, you know, really taking the, the toggles? It was uh, pretty loose, you know, at that point in canopy piloting history, the term canopy piloting didn't exist. You know, we we're still flying par- skydivers, flying parachutes, and the hook turn was very much the cool new in thing that was just starting to happen people were just doing hook turns and they weren't really demonized yet it was right at that time when parachutes were moving from the seven cell f111 days to uh the zp canopies of today so the the hottest parachute in the marketplace was a stiletto okay that was cutting edge so at the time, it sounds like uh, parachute instruction was mostly just about survival. It was the basic radio training that you would get on any drop zone with, you know, Manta 288, left turn, left turn, left turn, hold your heading, hands up, left turn, left turn, hold your heading, hands up. Okay, flare. That was, okay. That was the end of it, you know? I mean, okay, let, let me just, let's uh, get like, what year was this? 1994. 1994. I mean, it's, it's 30 years later and that doesn't sound very much different from what's happening now. (laughs) Painfully not. 
Okay. Well, okay. Moving on. Give me, uh, you know, you had uh, done several other extreme things before that. Um, what was your initial impression uh, of parachute education, uh, you know, in total, like the education that you received as compared to uh, the other extreme sports that you were involved in? Oh, well, I started off my career as an athlete in the gym. I was a gymnast. So I was very fortunate to be exposed to high level coaching in gymnastics as a young boy. And that, you know, it's a very well developed sport. Gymnastics has been around for a long time. So, you know, all different levels of coaching and, and then moving into the world of skydiving, you know, we had in Canada, the CSPA and the coaching system, the coach rating, you know, a static line jump instructor, you only need a hundred skydives to be a static line instructor. So you're basically getting the most fundamental type of coaching. And it, it was hard to say I really had any perspective on it at the time. You just take what you can get. I, I made my first skydive having read the parachutist handbook. Uh, so that I felt like I, I went to the library and got the got the book from the library and read it cover to cover before I ever made a jump. So I felt it was my responsibility to learn what I needed to know before arriving, not arriving and expecting somebody to educate me. Uh, and I guess I've always maintained that perception that it was always my responsibility to to know what I'm doing or to learn what I'm doing. And uh, as I moved through this you know, the years to follow, it's been about seeking out information from those who have it and collecting it and gathering it all into a, you know, amassing a data set. Let's say, you know, we're on the drop zone for the first time looking for canopy instruction. And this might be a, an issue that you can solve unequivocally for us. I don't know the difference between the asshole that says he knows everything about parachute sports and Jay Maletsky. I don't even know your name. I have no idea who is experienced and who isn't. And the difference between you and the dude that like literally just learned how to swoop their canopy is nothing. So how am I supposed to tell like who is giving me good information and who is just speaking completely out of their ass and, and what their motivations are, you know, exactly. because there's a point in a young jumpers career where the ego really wants to tell others about what they, what we think we know, right? It's what we think we know at a point excited about it, right? There's a lot of energy. So it's easy to fall into the trap of being that guy, gal person who, you know, enthusiastically shares some information with somebody who's eager to receive it. And you send them, send them bad information. And I can say for fact that I did that at that point in my career where I was that guy who had some information and gave it to somebody. And the first thing they did was go break their neck. So my motivations, you know, 27, 28 years down the road from having that experience happen early on in my career as a canopy coach, you know, that was, that was like canopy coach day one. The first lesson I learned was watching somebody get, you know, seriously affect the rest of their life. Jeez. And then, you know, my motivations now are wanting to make sure that doesn't happen to anybody who's coming into the sport. So what can I say about the person who walks into a drop zone and has no idea what they don't know? They don't know what they don't know. They they can get some 
you know, information from whoever's standing right in front of them, or they can seek out information that's been peer reviewed. And really that's what it comes down to for me is so we're, it's still on the, the responsibility still falls on every single person who walks through any door of any facility to ensure that the information that they're receiving is, is peer reviewed. And it's been held to a standard of quality that ensures that, you know, other, other people within the community who also have made these vocations or pursuits of enough interest and value in their life that they're willing to invest their time and energy into ensuring that the quality is on par. Maybe you can throw at us some of the like material that you'd recommend for early parachute education. I think that, I mean, the best material that's currently out there right now in written form is by Brian Germain, you know, the pilot, uh, the pilot's handbook. Uh, it parachute called. and its pilot. Parachute and its pilot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've read that a few times. I think that's probably the best, you know, text that there is right now. And again, that's written by an independent individual who just, you know, chose to share his passion and love for the sky and the sport and for other people's best interest and summarize it into a book. And, you know, I think he self self published it too. I asked, uh, the USPA not too long ago to recommend this book, uh, and say like, Hey, you know, it'd be really cool if the USPA got behind this book and, you know, showed it to early jumpers and recommended it maybe on the website in the library section, which has nothing at the moment. Um, and their response back to me, and this was all the way up the chain from every SNTA to the president themselves was that it was not peer reviewed. What is that supposed to mean? Like it, it means that I don't know, like, because I was like looking at all of them going like, well, aren't you the peers that should review it? Like I'm talking to the safety and training committee. I'm talking to the president of the organization. Like if, if y'all are not the authority that reads something and says, yes, this is good to go. Then, then who is? Yeah. I mean, that's a question that I don't know if I could dive into trying to answer right now or even if I'd want to. You know? <laughs> right. And it's interesting that you're like, okay, well, it's peer reviewed because like as, as you know, an educator in parachute sports, I would say that you're also at the top of the heap for a peer that would review something like this. Your recommendation, you know, as one of the founders of flight one goes a long way to say that something has credibility. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree. I mean, there are a number of um, people that I have a lot of respect for who I work with on a regular basis. And I would always put anything that I'm considering stating as, you know, a, a system that I believe is functioning that we're interacting with, I would put it in front of them and get their feedback. And then Brian did that to me before publishing his book. He asked me for feedback on a lot of the sections that are in there. And we discussed a bunch of the elements that and how they're illustrated and the way, you know, how, how they're verbally illustrated and whether the concepts held water and, and were in alignment and whether we agreed upon them. And I have a lot of respect for the fact that he, you know, reached out to do that beforehand. Uh, so yeah, in some ways it has been peer reviewed, you know, but you know, is there a system in place? Like, are we like the medical system or are we like other governing bodies like you know the the roads that are out there like do autom automobiles have to meet a certain standard aircraft have to meet a certain standard we don't have those standards you know not for the people 
who do the jobs to analyze the if things are up to a certain par or not, and not for the systems that are within the areas to be questioned. So. Yeah. And that's really interesting that, you know, this book that is uh, not recommended by our like parent organization is being informally peer reviewed behind the scenes by experts. And like on the flip side, we've got the skydivers information manual, which has like a embarrassingly small section on canopy flight. Like, I mean, I think they have like two diagrams explaining canopy flight and one of them is unequivocally physically wrong. <laughs> awesome. I can tell you I haven't opened a sim in 20 years. And and that's quote unquote peer reviewed. Like it yeah. is reviewed by all the SNTAs signed off on like that's as close as we get to uh, the medical field of like stamp of approval. Yeah. <laughs> 20 years, huh? Um, <laughs> uh, uh, let me... Let me pivot things a little bit because I can say Please. in the early 2000s, you know, just a little bit into the first decade of the century, Flight One as a budding canopy school, which had just been getting traction and, you know, we've been incorporated and getting building our curriculum. We had partnered with uh, Scott Miller of Freedom of Flight and developed um a two-part curriculum, which both had built on his early curriculum started back in 99, which was an essential skills course that he had developed as a test jumper for PD and wanting to do something more to deliver a better, more comprehensive program to the early jumper. And he had a seven jump program called the essential skills program. And we had partnered up with him and we got to work on developing a more high performance curriculum and taking everything that we'd been working on as high performance pilots and finding the bridge between these two and how the comp where the commonalities were. And we were approached by a special forces operator who wanted to improve on what the military was doing. And at that time it was absolutely horrifically evident that what the military was doing was 20 years behind what sports skydiving was doing. The equipment that they were flying was so horrendously outdated and so far behind that it was just, it was just horrifying to look and be like, wow, <laughs> you know, imagine if you see people come into the drop zone with 25 year old rigs and 25 year old parachutes. And that's the, you know, the par, that's the standard of where things are at. You're like, guys, First of all, put that down. Let's go get a modern piece of equipment and let's start here. And so, you know, this, this fellow had enough foresight to come to us and be like, hey, you're on the cutting edge of what's happening right now. We are so far behind. We need to completely revamp our programs from the ground up. And we want to work with you to do it. So we've spent the last 15 years doing that. And I can say without the shadow of a doubt that the military forces that we work with are now an easily 15 years ahead of where sports skydiving is as far as the level of instruction, the approach to how they do things and the skill level of a jumper who comes out of a training program there will be five to 10 times, you know, 10 times ahead of where a sports skydiver is going to be by the time they have 50 jumps. Okay. So I've got an important question to ask you about how far behind sports skydiving is from the cutting edge. And I don't ask this question to knock anyone. I ask this question 
because I see so many people wash up in base jumping woefully unprepared for the environment because they believe that they have gotten the cutting edge, like awesome instruction of today. And then they end up in an environment where you have to execute or you're going to get fucked up. So like the question is how far behind the cutting edge of modern technology and techniques are like just is the baseline for skydiving canopy instruction. Well, we can go right back to where we started this conversation with it all depends who you talk to when you walk up on the drop zone, because if you walk up to a flight one instructor, you're going to get the leading edge. If you walk up to your average Joe, you know, who just finished their AFF program, you're going to get the trailing edge. Okay. So how far behind is the trailing edge is what I'm saying. Like of the person that's right out. 15 to 20 years. 15 to 20 years. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, let's, uh, let's just package that real fast and, uh, we're going to move on to, uh, high performance parachuting and get back into some of your early progression as well. So what, uh, what got you interested initially, uh, in pursuing, I mean, I know you saw that person like hook that turn, but, uh, what ended up getting you, uh, you know, involved in high performance parachuting? The truth of the matter is that 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 same fella, his name was Sean Lemire. He became my mentor in the sport of skydiving. And I you know, learned the basics from him as a beginning jumper. And by the time I had a thousand jumps, I bet I'd done 500 of them with him. And by the time I had 1500 jumps, I'd done a thousand jumps with him. And I was now on a four-way team doing formation skydiving with Sean. And I was the young guy on the team. You know, I had 1500, everybody else had 3000, three and a half thousand, 4,000 jumps. And because I'd been brought up by, you know, the hot shot on the drop zone as a powerful mentor, I was, you know, my skill set was, you know, on the tails of people that were really pushing hard. And he went in, he died. And I felt at the same time, my life kind of was just falling apart where I had moved from Canada to the States. I had the girlfriend that I was with at the time had left. I had quit my career uh, that I had for about 10 years as an elevator mechanic to go and pursue competition skydiving and in formation skydiving. And then I found myself just treading water with no job and no direction. And I was at, you know, 20 four years old. And here I am in Deland, Titusville, Florida, going, what now? What do I do now? Hmm. And I base jumped for a little while while I was trying to kind of figure out who I was and where I was going and what I was doing. And I spent some time working at Vertigo Base Outfitters with Marta Empanati and Mario Richard, who mentored me there. And right around the year 2000, I guess it was about two years after Sean had gone in, I got my hands on a velo. I had been to a few comp canopy piloting competitions. They were still called pond swooping competitions back then. And there were, a, there were two competitions in the year 2000 that both had prize money in the neighborhood of like $5,000 for first place. And as somebody who was trying to scratch a living, living in a van and making $5 an hour or packing parachutes or doing whatever I could get, when I saw $5,000 prize money 
and I wanted Sean's legacy to carry on. Like I wanted my mentor's scratch, you know, like I wanted his mark to be left. So I'm like, this is what he taught me. And I'm going to go and do it better than he, he ever did it and going to do it better than anybody ever did it. And that was really the, that's what it was really about. Man. Okay. I've got a couple of questions on mentorship. You mentioned a couple of mentors and uh, I'm wondering, how did you choose those people as mentors? There are a lot of people looking for mentorship in this game and they don't exactly know how to approach it. How did you end up with the mentors that you had and, and what was the, was there any kind of selection process that you went through? I think I'm pretty lucky. I, I count my blessings in this life. I lost my father when I was nine years old and that left me as a young boy needing to be willing to just ask the questions of whoever it was that I needed that I thought might have the answer. So I've never been afraid to go and ask somebody for something as far as tell me what you're doing. I teach me because I I didn't have that like immediately available to me on a daily basis as a young man because my dad was already gone. And so I pursued mentors like I avidly pursued them in, in mechanics as a young man. I, I was really into engines and learning to build things. And so I pursued mechanics in, I pursued mentors in mechanical work and machine work and electro electrical. And these, and so in skydiving was the same thing. I just kind of looked to not just who was the best at something, but who had the best attitude about it, who really seemed like somebody that would, share the information that they knew in a way that they were happy to do so. He was just the kind of guy who would, you know, if people were amassing in the load area, loading area, he would kind of take somebody and walk them to where they needed to be. He'd put a hand on somebody's shoulder and be like, you should be more over here, you know, like, oh, come on, be on this jump, you know? And he would just, it was instinctive and natural for him to, kind of bring everybody in and bring them up to his level. He was always bringing people up to his level. That That's what he did, you know? And I, so I followed him to Florida early on and, you know, he would do load organizing, just straight up LO load organizing. You're doing a belly fly 12 way with a bunch of rookies, you know, and he would go around and he would t- tell the divers how to dive and he would teach the floaters how to float and he would teach the base how to come out. And he would just give, bring everybody, just little tips everywhere, bring them all up to his level so that everybody could have a good experience. And and he was way above everybody's level at that point in time. So, you know, he was, he was lowering himself down to get everybody to bring him up so that everybody could have an awesome skydive together. And the skydive would be way below the par of what his potential was. You know, I'd go on a skydive with him and do a 50.4 way, you know, and he'd go, (laughs) you know, he'd go do an AFF or do something with somebody. And, and that's what mentorship's all about, right? It's about knowing what it's like to be green and and just sitting there and letting the person who's green be green and be green with them. All right. Moving on to the end of mentorship, because this is something that I'm going through currently and it's kind of full circle because you're involved in the incident. Um, I'm wondering how you deal with the loss of a mentor, you know, a lifelong mentor. You know, I just, uh, Jimmy uh, Pouchert was the person that taught me how to base jump. You uh, referenced earlier uh, the loss of your mentor. How did you deal with that? What was the uh, what was the stage after feeling lost? 
I can't say that this was as easy to say at the to do at the time as it is to say now. But I've learned through my experience in this life that we're constantly passing it forward. Everything that we're given is a gift. And I make a huge point to express my gratitude directly to those who give it. I can remember stopping Mario in the hallway at the Luxor uh, at Jimmy and Marta's wedding and grabbing him and being like, hey, I really, really, really want to thank you, man, because everything that you've taught me has been so important to me. You know, this would have been 2002, I think, when uh, 2001, 2002, when Jimmy got Jimmy and Marta got married. So, yeah. and he was like, hey, man, it's all good, man. You know, just the most casual kind of thing. And to me, I am sitting here talking to you from the Stavanger Bass Club. I sat on top of a mountain today with a green jumper. He did his eighth bass jump. I sat with him yesterday while he did his seventh. And then these were refreshers. He hadn't jumped in two years, you know. And I didn't really want to go to the exit point that we went to. You know, I would have went to a different exit. Uh, but I, I uh, it pass it forward, man, pass it forward. So if somebody's passing it to you, pass it forward and do a better job. You know, try and w- bring, bring everything I learned from Jimmy, bring everything I learned from Mario, bring everything I learned from Sean, bring everything I learned from every mentor I've ever had and make it into something that's even better. Man, Dan BC, that guy's given me so much over the years and just pass that forward to the next generation so that they have that same, example to go, I'm going to be like that. I'm going to be better than that. I'm going to do it awesome. And then this person's going to have an awesome experience because of it. I like that. So we keep the energy flowing and, uh, deal with the loss by continuing to honor their, their, uh, contribution to the sport. Yeah. And the, the term loss is a, it's incorrect. I have to, okay. I got to tell you to shut the fuck up there. Cause all right, dude, yeah. No tell me to shut the as, fuck up. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's no loss right? We don't ever lose anything. This is a constant gain environment. So what I received from Mario was gain, 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 positive. What did I receive from Jimmy? Positive gain, gain, gain. What did I received from Sean? Positive gain, gain. Did I lose anything here? Did anybody take anything from me? Yeah, good point. Yeah, you started off with nothing and then all of a sudden you had a bunch. I have more. There's no, I, nothing is ever removed. <clears throat> Right. So it's only a a net positive experience. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting one. People kept telling me when uh, Jimmy went in like, oh, he's left a huge hole in the community. And I was like, whoa, 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 that doesn't sound right. I think, I think what you're looking for is he left a giant mountain behind. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A massive, a massive impact. Like, yes. Yeah. I like that adjustment. Okay. Let's, let's go to uh, gain rather than loss. Net positive. Yeah. <laughs> positive. Okay. Um, moving forward, uh, I want to get into some practical magic with you. Um, your progression in learning how to like fly a parachute and learning how to become an intuitive pilot. I'm sure that the methodologies have changed from when you first began to now. Can you walk us through some of the ways in which uh, you learn a parachute and some of the ways that you teach somebody how to become a pilot. Sure. 
So the ways in which I learn a parachute and the ways in which I teach, these are pretty similar. I'd say there's a lot of alignment in that now. Uh, when I am handed a parachute for the first time or when I now have not, never flown it before, I'm generally going to run through the same set of exercises that are going to help me to gain uh, a better understanding about how that parachute functions or how that wing flies is a, is a way to more accurately say it. And whether that's a base parachute, a skydiving parachute or a paraglider is, it does not matter. It's the same. They're all wings. Perfect. So like we want to, I, I want to delve into what are some of the things that you want to understand about the parachute? A lot of people just go straight to, all right, let me put it in an area. Um, what are some of the things that you want to know about this thing uh, before you start, you know, really ripping it? Yeah, well, I want to gain a f more subtle relationship with the wing, first of all. So I'm going to start exploring the control range at the very top and very subtly and very sensitively give just like a few millimeters of input where I'm just reading how, how does it respond to the most delicate touch on the controls and i'm also going to do that with the harness i'm going to start to just have the most delicate shift left and right in the harness and forward and back in the harness to see what level of sensitivity i can expect from the primary control system and uh, so then i'll make my way further into the control range and start to explore further down i'll start to do greater degrees of roll greater degrees of bank and for greater degrees of pitch and I'll stable it back out again and then I'll expand and expand and I'll kind of move through the same set of exercises, just going deeper and deeper into the control range and increasing the rate of input and the rate of release uh, repetitively and the depth of input and the, and the rate, uh, how long I sustain it or how long, how quickly I release it uh, to explore the way that the wing responds to those inputs. Yep. Okay. Do you have a, a marker for how well you know a parachute before you put your, and I'm going to like have a line here, your body at risk. And uh, I'm going to qualify that by saying like, you know, your body at risk means uh, your body in some kind of, you know, danger of hitting some hard surface. This could be swooping. This could be base jumping. This could be, you know, accuracy into hazards. Like how well do you need to know a parachute uh, before you put your body at risk? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a two-part answer to this one. And the first part is a question that I asked of um, somebody who I respect a lot. And uh, man, I really enjoyed flying with this guy. I got to see him recently. Uh, it was so great to catch up. It's been ages. Christopher Irwin was uh, somebody who was flying these ultra-small little parachutes back in the 90s before virtually anybody else was there were very very few people who were flying these sub 60 square foots in the mid 90s so he was definitely pioneering and i went and asked him i think it was 2000 the spring of 2000 i said hey chris what do you think about this velocity i've seen you flying uh for the last while now because i'm curious because it came out in 99 he had just gotten one and he said well I've only got 300 jumps on it. I can't really give you an opinion about it yet. <laughs> so that one has always stuck with me as a solid reference because he had upsized by 25 square feet to jump that parachute. And he was already an, 
you know, cut like top of the top of the grade pilot of the time, and he wasn't willing to make any statement at all about how the parachute, anything about it, with three hundred jumps. And now, if I take that to my own, you know, career, and I say, okay, you know, I have thousands of jumps on these wings, and you know, where do I trust them? And if I'm moving within a range of a particular wing, so the Peregrine's a great example, you know, one of the fastest wings in the market today. When we developed that, it took hundreds and hundreds of jumps to get to a point where felt like there was any relationship of trust with that particular wing. And if we were to make the slightest change to it in prototyping, then it's immediately on guard again. The trust is retracted and Mm. it's, you know, the, the, I would always put it through its paces much more than I would more, much more aggressively at altitude and try it, try to break it at altitude uh, before I would ever do anything with it near the ground. And then, and I'll just finish this statement with there's a difference between putting your trust in a parachute and putting your trust in your own skills. So me knowing that the maneuver that I'm using, I'm going to use, so my, my example would be if I was doing a 450 degree turn for landing, I would have 5,000 of those in the bank. So my familiarity with that maneuver is about as good as it's going to get. And uh, now I apply a wing to that maneuver and I go, what's my trust with this wing? Is it the one that I already have a thousand jumps on or is it the one that I only have a hundred on? And now my trust with that piece of equipment is going to vary depending on, you know, how much time has been spent with it. And then I still don't trust it. But you have to give it all your trust too. So there's the polarity. I like that. I like that. So before you put your body at risk, you need to have full confidence and trust that you are going to be able to execute and full confidence and trust that the wing is going to perform in the manner that you expect. Yeah, that's a, that's a good summary. Great job. Okay. All right. So, um, moving on to some tools. Uh, I know that, you know, the education um, modalities have changed quite a bit from, you know, when you started to now, what are some of the tools that you use in order to get to know and trust a wing or some of the techniques? Uh, Well, the two most powerful pieces of technology that we've had to leverage in the last 20 years are the video camera, number one, and the fly sight GPS tracker, number two. Those have been the most you know, the standard, the video camera has been around since, you know, of reasonable quality since the mid nineties, the handy cam, the nineties, you know, you could get everybody started to get a tape, you know, a high, high eight camera. So you could, you could do some debriefing of a landing. Uh, and then the, but we were really limited with that. I mean, that's only like my opinion, dude, about what might have happened, <laughs> and here's a video of like this is what I this yeah that says like I see what happened on the video is kind of what I thought happened, and I'm like okay cool, so this is a paradoxical situation where you have an opinion or a set of an emotional experience related to something that occurred, and then you have a, 
device that has captured information about that occurring, but you're still stuck with this viewpoint of you can look at it through the lens as a person who didn't, wasn't involved in it. I can just look at a video of somebody flying or I can be the person involved and I can share you my thoughts about it, or I can be the person involved looking at the video of myself flying, but it's totally limited. And it really wasn't until the fly site GPS logger came along that our whole world changed. And I can say that with, without a doubt. Okay. So can you give us, um, uh, maybe a couple of pieces of advice on effective camera, um, you know, usage when it comes to trying to get something useful, uh, to show someone as they're, they're coming in for a landing. Uh, so uh, how do I say that? I don't want to give away all the secrets, but I want to, I'm always been a believer in, you know, you want to, I grew up with the mentality and I want to say thank you to airspeed for the decades of dedication and they, the, the airspeed ideal that I grew up with was if I asked them a question, they would just give me the answer and be like, Hey, here's the answer. I hope you don't beat us in competition, but I hope you kind of do because that would show that <laughs> you know, you're, that you're pushing really hard and that you're awesome at this. And then we'll, we'll try harder to beat you too because we just love the pursuit of excellence. So, a functional debrief video needs to include the entire flight plan. You need to see from the pattern entry all the way through the downwind, the base, the turn for final, all the turns. It needs to be zoomed in to where there's a level of resolution that you can see the detail of what's going on with everything on the canopy, the jumper's body, the jumper's hands, everything of needs to be zoomed in. And then you need to see their entire final approach and have a quality camera that has a functional zoom and ideally the perspective remains fixed that the angle that you're filming from is ideally set up at a 90 degree angle or perpendicular to where they're going to land at the target and offset by say 100 yards or so so that you can film their entire downwind their entire base their entire final all the way through the landing and you don't have to move positions and you only really have to move about 45 degrees to the right and back again to capture everything. So perfect. Do you have any, I know this one's going to be tough because fly sight is a very visual tool, but do you have any advice uh, for somebody that's just getting into using fly sight? Uh, that's it. So if it's a pilot who just got a fly sight, I say learn to use the tool menu. The first thing is learn to navigate the software. If you don't know how to operate the, the main interface that you're working with, with a fair amount of ease, then you're really just going to be scratching your head. It's just like if I were to log in, when I logged into Photoshop for the first time 15 or 20 years ago, and I'm just bumping my head against a wall going, I don't know how to use any of this. This is just gibberish to me, you know? <laughs> so learning to operate the, the interface. And if you use FlySight Viewer, that's the default piece of software that most canopy pilots use. And I'm proud to say that that's been a collaborative development between myself and Michael Cooper from FlySight specifically for canopy flight debrief purposes. So if you learn to navigate the tool menu and learn to navigate through the different panes, then you can, as far as, far as the windows, then it can be very, you can move through very quickly and get to the information you want. And really that's what it comes down to is keep it really simple and altitude 
horizontal distance, horizontal speed, vertical speed, and time. Those are the, the four parameters that I pull up if I'm going to start off in a basic world. How much altitude on the left, how much time on the bottom, and then I had in along the timeline, I add in vertical speed and horizontal speed, nothing else. Nice. Well, uh, we don't want to have you like just teaching an entire canopy course audio, uh, by audio because it's impossible, but right. I would like to know, uh, your about flight one, the canopy program that you developed. Um, I want to know first, why did you guys start this program? You know, you went from performance, uh, pilots, PD factory team, uh, you know, competitors and parachute testers to instruction program, which is a, a pretty big jump shift. So yeah, first of all, let me give credit where credit's due and start off by saying that flight one was founded as a partnership between the PD factory team and Scott Miller of freedom of flight. And then we later merged with Brian Vasher, who was the founder of the safe flight school and, and put those two schools together so that we can spread knowledge across the world and have a peer reviewed environment where we're really bringing in uh, the best of the best to make sure that what we're teaching is accurate. And the why is let's be honest, we can't make a living swooping parachutes. You can barely scratch out a living in any sector of skydiving in, you know, the old saying that says, if you have a million dollars, if you want to make a million dollars in skydiving, start with two, this is, this is real deal. You know, so we don't want to run a tandem operation and try to earn a nickel off every skydiver coming through. We wanted to put in place a system of something that was going to outlive my career as a high performance canopy pilot. And we knew that passing forward the same system of mentorship like hey we're gonna pass this forward to the next generation there's no point in spending 15 or 20 years becoming excellent at something just to die and take that information with you that's selfish <laughs> right so the credit goes to uh, ian bobo shannon pilcher jc cole Clazer, jonathan tagle and myself for becoming the founders of flight one and now the credit goes to a cadre of almost 50 instructors who gather on a biannual basis to improve their own skill sets and to review material and to update everything that we're doing. And that is peer reviewed by the top tier special forces teams in the entire world. So if you want to know about peer review, go work with special forces guys and see how they look at your stuff and see if it's up to snuff or not. So it sounds like the mission was to just continue pushing the sport forward even after you're, you know, long gone rather than, I mean, you can scratch a living easily as an individual, but that's not going to have any legs to it. Yeah. And, and really it's about <clears throat> passing it forward. That whole thing, you know, we've, everybody in my team, uh, PD factory team, as we founded flight one, the reason why we founded flight one was because we were constantly being pursued to give pass forward the knowledge. It was just this onslaught of requests for education. Please teach us, please teach us, please teach us. This was just like, it was coming out of so much. We couldn't ever even fulfill all the requests that we were getting. Uh, and we wanted to train, we wanted to compete, we wanted to swoop. So we started flight one to put some structure in place to be able to fulfill the requests that were coming in in a structured manner. And we knew as competitive pilots that 
if you're going to do anything well, you have to set up a structure around it. It's got to have some kind of a program and a flow. So we basically took what we were doing as competitors and turned it in and merged it with what Scott Miller was doing with his, you know, essential skills program and laid down a path forward. Now we've reiterated that since 2000 over and over and over again. I mean, Scott's program is from 99. I think his first students were in 99. So we're now 23 years into what a, you know, a first time participant is going to experience. And that's been peer reviewed thousands of times. Anytime that any one of us in our, in our program, if we find a typo or a, a wording that doesn't seem to sit right or isn't telling the right story or isn't telling a true story, we'll just send that information into our team and have the team review it and make a change. You know, And this is a, what do we call an idea meritocracy, which is something I've uh, re... We'll go ahead and put a pin right here. Uh, idea Ray Dalio. There we go. Ray Dalio's book gave me a concept of the idea meritocracy, where it doesn't matter who comes up with the idea. It doesn't matter whether they're the newest, greenest person who walked, just walked in the door or whether they're the most senior tenured officer in the organization. If the idea holds merit, if the idea is, is correct and everybody goes, huh, yeah, that's right. We're doing it wrong. We should listen to, we should make that change. Then that change gets implemented. And, and that's really what it's all about is being open to change when Man. we see that that's it. That, uh, that sounds wholesale, uh, unequivocally, categorically against uh, the uh, philosophy that I've witnessed um, in our parent organizations. Um, I hear quite often from people uh, at like at SNTAs and other uh, other folks that are supposed to be um, part of our you know educational progression, <clears throat> saying, "Well, that's the way we've always done it." Like, <laughs> yeah, tra traditional I, tra tradition's a killer, right? Yeah, right. there's a, there's a big difference between a culture and a tradition. A tradition is something that you repeat over and over again, exactly the same without changing it, because you want to hold true to its ideal of what it is. And there's some value in the concept of tradition, but a culture should evolve. Tradition does not. An evolution favors the most adaptable. Yeah. I also hear quite often um, from the USPA about experience. Like, well, that person's been in the sport for 30 years. They must be right. You know, and this person just entered the sport. So like, why would we listen to them? And it's really uh, refreshing to hear on the other side that, you know, you guys are approaching it from let's analyze the idea, you know, versus let's analyze the source of that idea. Yeah, I mean, you and I have talked about this in the past where the person is irrelevant. You know, we don't talk about people. We talk about ideas, right? It's not important to say, oh, this person said that or this person did that or this What? Let's remove the person from the concept of what we're talking about here and let's talk about what is being talked about and whether the idea that's on the table 
holds water has merit or not because as soon as you remove the egoic attachment to whether or not this is the right path or this this idea makes any sense then everybody wants i mean if if we take our egos out of the equation we want the people who are coming in the door to have their best interest at the you know at the foreground i like how you uh threw that into our debriefing as well um when uh, we started talking about people's mistakes, uh, part of your philosophy was like, look, we don't talk about people. We talk about concepts. Uh, can you expand that real fast? Because I'd, I'd love for that to come on to this show as well. Yeah. So first of all, nobody likes to be spoken about behind their back or belittled in front of others or used as a negative example. There's an emotional experience that we all have as humans. Part of this whole journey is the whole thing we're doing is to feel emotions and emotions don't always feel good. And that will really mess up our decision-making because we'll do things in order to feel better, better at the moment rather than to actually ensure that the outcome is what we really want uh, because emotions are so powerful. And that happens on both sides of the equation. So whether you're the more experienced person teaching or whether you're the student learning is irrelevant. We still tend to do things to make ourselves feel better all the time. And the tool that has really helped me to get out of this box is the fly sight straight up. And I can say without a doubt, I was swooping wrong. Like the, just because I won all the competitions that I was in for such a long time and did so well, doesn't mean I was doing it right. It means I was doing it better than everybody else. Oh man, what a what a great uh, thing to put down, because that's also something in, in base jumping, like that is a a justification for continuing those traditions. Like, oh well, nothing's gone wrong yet. You know, I've done this a hundred times, as though that's like something that's a large number and haven't died. So, like, I'm doing this quote unquote right. That's really interesting to hear you say that, even though you were winning and the top of the heap. Um, that you came to the conclusion ultimately that you were doing things wrong. Can you uh, can you share just like a little bit about uh, what adjustments you made? Yeah. So everything this this is where the camera and the GPS logger. So the GPS logger doesn't have an opinion. It doesn't have any emotional experience. It just logs data. So when I'm in a classroom, and if you were to take a 200 series course with me, and we were to plug in the fly site and look at your flight plan per se, as an example, we would remove Matt from the equation and we remove Jay from the equation. And we just look at a flight plan and we debrief the flight plan in comparison to the flight plan that we drew before. So on one screen, you have Google Earth, and you have a flight plan that has been drawn out that shows distances and altitudes. And on the other screen, we have Google Maps and we have a flight plan that is a data plot from the actual pilot's flight plan. And now it's not Matt that we're looking at. It's the flight plan, right? And it's not Jay's opinion about what the flight plan should be. It's like, this is what we planned, right or wrong. This is what occurred, irrelevant, whether it's right or wrong. Do they match? And that's it. And do we, as a collective, the whole room, not just me, but the whole room agree where and how we should make the changes in order to improve upon it so that the next time we do it, we get a 
an outcome closer to what we desire. Nice. So it's a move for objectivity and precision. And uh, in recent years, through the fly site, you've learned to be a more precise flyer? Objectiveness, right? It is that yeah. it's objective versus subjective. And that is due, removing that subjectiveness of it, not being personally related to what the data is. I may be the person going to try and change that, but the data just is what the data is. And it's great because you'll never, the learning experience is so greatly improved when we go, huh, oh, I guess I really was at 150 feet for my final turn because it says right there, I swear I looked at my altimeter and it said 280. So. <laughs> oh man, I've had so many arguments like that before. It's like mind blowing. They're like, no, yeah. I'm pretty sure this was what happened. And they're like, nope, nope, definitely not. And you're like, oh man, okay. Well, if we don't agree on the objectives, then there's no lesson that I can possibly teach you. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, moving on. Uh, I want to know, like we're, we're talking a little bit about judgment and, uh, you know, kind of observing things in a non-judgmental way of removing ego. And I want to kind of get into putting some judgment back in to a couple of common questions <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of common questions that come up all the time in base jumping, but I think have, uh, come up over a longer period in canopy piloting and swooping. So I want to okay. know how you approach these two questions. The first one is uh, somebody coming up to you, asking them to learn something that is completely out of their depth. How do you approach that conversation? How do you like, what do you say to somebody that comes to ask you, you know, after not too long, you know, let me like, let me do something super wild. Let me do something dangerous. So, well, th th this is a challenging position to be in, and it takes a skill set to be able to navigate through safely. And I would say the first piece of advice that I would put out is if you don't feel that you confidently have a skill set to be able to navigate this, then perhaps say, I can't give you the answer to that. And just, I don't know. Is, is really a great way to answer. If you do feel like you have a skill set to deconstruct what the person is asking for them or help them deconstruct what they're asking to a point where they are able to identify that they do or do not have the, like, the appropriate position to be asking the question, then that's generally what I try to do. So okay. Matt, you walk up to me, you ask me, Hey, teach me how to use rear risers for, for landing. And I'd be like, okay, cool. Oh, well, what are you doing right now? And I immediately, I'm going to just start to ask you questions and I'm going to get to get you to tell me things rather than me tell you. And that's a skill set of a coach, right? A coach is going to get the student to give out the answers and, and walk the person down the road to the point where they get that kind of fork where they go, I don't know from here. I don't know whether I'm left or right. And it's my job as a coach to help you find that point. And if somebody insists repeatedly, like just kind of hardheadedly to give me the, tell me where the treasure is, you know, and they're trying like, they want me to draw them a map to the end of the road. <laughs> I'm just not going to do it. I'm, I'm going gotcha. to say, 
here's my card, come take a class. You know, there's a certain point where my free mentorship, which I'm happily give out to absolutely anybody who wants it. If they're not willing to follow the path and lay it, that's laid out there and just want to go straight for the cherry. Uh, no, thanks. Not interested. No. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, let's pack that one up. Cause that is, that is a great one. Um, so I come to you and I go, Hey man, like I really want a wingsuit base jump. And, uh, rather than just shut them down and say, no, you're going to understand what the steps are to getting there. And the first thing that you need to do is understand where that person is in order to get them on the proper progression to their eventual goal. And then the advice comes as like the first step from wherever they're sitting to the eventual, uh, goal of wingsuit base. And then furthermore, you're saying like, look, everybody is a little different in experience. If you don't know what the progression is, even if you're at the end of it, like even if you are a wingsuit base jumper and, uh, somebody comes up to you asking, but you don't know what the full progression is, then rather than shut that person down, just send them to somebody else that might know that progression. You know, it's, it's totally like all of us, you and I included say, I don't know all the time. Absolutely. And, and I, I had this happen to me just a couple of weeks ago. I had a student in one of my courses. He, I was running a 101 and a 102 and the student introduced themselves during the introductions part of the class and said, when I ask what your goals are, he said, I am here to learn the skills I need to become a wingsuit base jumper. And this is a some mature gentleman, somebody in his sixties, who's just entered the sport of skydiving, who wants to become a wingsuit base. And he even told me the exit point that he wanted to jump from. And I'm immediately on guard because I know that when there's a clear target in mind that somebody has identified the specific cliff that they plan to jump off of, that I now need to have like a a warning light on because they may be target fixated and willing to skip over fundamental progression in order to go to the goal because they already know where the goal yeah. is. You know, they know like literally like if as long as I have a base rig and a wingsuit, I can go do this because I've been up there and I've stood on the exit before. Yeah. So my immediate response is fuck. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> this is an excellent goal. Because I have had this exact same goal and I've went to the exact same exit point so I can relate. So I'm like, this is an awesome goal. I'd love to help get you there. That's my response. I love uh, hearing that because, you know, my experience um, most of the time, you know, with the, with the exception of like my mentors and the people that like were actually there to educate me were people like, you know, that I was just trying to get some knowledge and advice for along the way. Uh, most of the time, like they just shut you down. Like they just, no, oh, man, that's stupid. You don't want to do that. That's, oh, that's dumb. Like, oh, you're not good enough for that. And it, eventually you like it, you know, you get kicked down the road to trying to do stuff by yourself. And that's really not like, <laughs> no shit, Sherlock, you're not good yeah. enough to do that. Well, yeah, that's why I'm asking questions. Right. right? <laughs> of course. I mean, we see this on the base jumper. What's the forum that you moderate on? Birds. Birds. So birds is great. First of all, but there's another one that uh, maybe you're not the moderator on it, uh, which is just ba general base jumping. Uh, I think it's on Facebook. Okay. I, uh, I'm only the moderator on one, but I know that there's another one that um, definitely uh, throws down. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I've looked at this, I've followed him over the years and I don't pay that much attention anymore. I've generally, you know, I throw in my good advice as I can, where I can, but mm-hmm. you, you see people shut down people with goals and aspirations right out the door. It, to me, it's crushing that somebody is like, man, I want to go learn to do that. They come in and they type, where can I learn this? You know? And they type, where can I learn to base jump? And somebody's like, go home loser. You're like, <laughs> yeah. First of all, that person who types that in is an asshole. They need to shut the fuck up. Boom. Right? And then the people who do chime in, which kudos to all you out there who are listening, who know, and you know who you are. I don't need to say your names, but you'd, lots of you have been in the sport for ages, and you take the time, and you write a paragraph, and you point that person to a reputable source of information, and you help them on their journey. And you say, hey, if you've never made a skydiver or base jump before, you need to go start skydiving. Get a few hundred jumps under your belt. And then maybe look at one of these really reputable schools that are in place out there where you can learn from. And that's all it takes is to give a little mentorship to somebody. And maybe that person becomes the person who's sitting in this chat one of these days. (laughs) Full circle. All right. Next question. We dealt with the person that's clearly not ready for what they're doing. And the next most common question, I know you feel it coming, is when somebody comes up to you and says, am I ready? You know, let's say that they're, you know, on the progression that you, you know, lined out for them. And now they're getting to the point where they're about to do like the actual thing, the dangerous shit, the goal at the end. uh, And they want to know from you, am I ready? I almost never receive that, you know, because generally I tell people they're ready before they think they are because I, I see that they're ready and they're more reserved They're because they're, they're taking the time to learn the correct path. I virtually never run into somebody telling me, asking me if they're ready, because if they're at, if they've been in the system, if they've been working to uptake all the information through all the good sources, then they would already know because they would have already been told. But still like, uh, I'm kind of curious how you would deal with doubt. I know that it is something that is like, you know, more less common when you're doing it in your method with the structure that you have and like the proper progression. Like it's hard for people to doubt themselves when they've been successful all along the road and like have met all the challenges. But let's imagine that you do find somebody that um, just doesn't know or somebody that hasn't been through your progression. So like they're coming, you know, from left field, just going like, hey. Yeah. And my progression isn't necessarily the the only progression. I mean, I highly encourage you to learn from every reputable source that you can possibly get information from. Like the best thing you could possibly go do is take more training with more people. So here's an example. If, and I'll, before I answer your question, I'll divert to this for a second. Okay. If you took a first jump base course with, you know, uh, apex base and you went and learned from Jimmy and Marta, Go take one with Sean Chuma. Go take one with Miles Tasher. Go take one with somebody. Go take another first jump course. I did this a while ago where I signed up for a course and I'm just like, I'm just going to sign up and take another course with a totally different instructor. And I'm not going to give them any backstory about who I think I am because I want to learn and I don't want to be treated special. I don't want things skipped over or assumed that I know. I don't want there to be that cognitive bias that it's like, no, you've done this before, so you must know. So I'll bring this back to your question here. Mm -hmm. 
is I had a student walk in the door a couple of days ago and he's got half a dozen base jumps that he did a couple of years ago. And that's not very much, you know, that's scratching the surface. You're like, I went and did it a couple of times. Didn't, didn't have any equipment, you know, had one instructor jump from one place, really baby bird type person, you know? And, and when I ask him, I'm like, do you think you're ready to go jump off a cliff? And he's like, I think I am. And I'm like, okay, run it by me. Like, give me a dry run of how the whole thing is going to like flow, you know, like break it down. And where do you see the holes in your own story? You know? So I find asking people to iterate exactly what they think they're going to do in a clearly laid out structure is going to help them see their own I have all the pieces in place. This path is paved. I've done, yes, I've done all the work to get me here. Or, oh, actually, there's a huge pothole in my road here where I didn't actually answer this question about how high I need to do this turn or what, you know, like whatever variable isn't answered. Uh, I got you. That that makes perfect sense. The best instructor is always going to get the student to answer their own question. So if they present doubt, you're going to doubt the doubt by asking them to fill in all the gaps until there is no doubt. And, you know, if they come up with something that seems like there's a gap, you'll be like, all right, well, what about this? Have you thought about that? And I'm going to double check on their default strategies, like their EP, what is your emergency procedures? How are you going to save yourself if it goes wrong here? How are you going to save yourself if it goes wrong here? How have you done the, the work to train and physically do these exercises to say, and this is how our entire program is structured at Flight One. You're going to learn all the recovery drills before you're going to learn the drill. We're going yeah. to start off with recoveries. How do we recover? How do we save ourselves when things to go incorrectly so that we have systems in place? It's just like teaching somebody to drive. I'm going to teach them how to turn into a skid and how to brake before I'm ever going to teach them to go fast, you know? Yeah. Okay. So basically like you got some doubt. All right. We're going to help you prove it. And if you can't prove it, then we got some training for you. Yeah. All right. So moving on, uh, I want to like kind of move towards uh, or back towards, uh, your experience and, uh, get back into some of the, the more specific base jumping. I mean, this is a podcast about base jumping, so we'd be remiss in not like talking about your experience there. Um, though, like we brought you onto the podcast mostly to talk about, uh, canopy education and, you know, people's, uh, early education in skydiving. Um, but back to like base jumping, uh, what got you initially interested in base jumping? I didn't even know I was interested in base jumping until I realized I was interested in base jumping. (laughs) (laughs) I, I was at the drop zone. I think it was my second weekend to tell you the truth. I think I was there for my return jump to do jump two. And I was doing some drills. They had these chairs with the toggles that would be on these two risers above your head. And they would like, it was actually a good training program for the day. And like a swivel chair with casters on it and the instructor would stand behind you and they would spin you around and you'd have to reach up and grab toggles. Maybe the toggles were not there or whatever. And they'd be like, Oh, okay. Cut away. You know, and you'd have to go down and you have handles and you'd have to do this practice. And I was in this training and suddenly I realized I'm like, I'm learning parachute skills and 
if I'm learning how to fly a parachute, it means I'm learning what I need to learn to be able to base jump. And I put two and two together and I remember the light bulb lighting up and the realization that I was getting the fundamental skill set through skydiving and through canopy flight instruction to learn what I needed to become a base jumper. And I went, holy shit. <laughs> this is this is what's happening next. And then I immediately went like completely goal oriented. And let's be clear, I learned how to sky how to base jump on the internet. From the Oh internet really? In the that was my next question. What was your, yeah, what was your initial progression? How did you get into it? The internet. Okay, do tell. How did I, that work? So out? so don't ping anybody who's like, Oh, I saw a YouTube video and I want to learn to base jump. Okay, so I saw a TV commercial with some people hucking off a cliff. And I don't even remember what it was. It might have been a Mountain Dew commercial back in the 90s. And I saw some base jumping and I was inspired. And so I started asking everybody and anybody. I was totally that guy who was like, hey, do you know anybody who base jumps? Hey, I want to learn. Do you know anybody base jump? And people are like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Nobody in my drop zone base jumped. Somebody told me there's one guy who comes here sometimes who I think has base jumped before. And so I sought that guy out and I was like, he said, I can't tell you anything. I just went and jumped off the bridge with my skydiving gear. And so I'm like, all right. I went to the other drop zones in the neighborhood and I went to the neighboring drop zones, which I hadn't even been to before. I'm talking like a 20 jump wonder rolling into a drop zone. I'm like going to make a skydive, of course, but I'm introducing myself and be like, hey, does anybody here base jump? You know? And everybody's like, no, I can't find any base jumpers. So I didn't know how to use the internet yet, but a friend of mine did. And I got him to print it. He printed out an article, uh, you know, introduction to base jumping written by Walt Appel back in, this would have been 94, 95. And I got the article and it said, you use a bigger pilot chute. It said to use a longer bridle. It said to take the bag off. And so I did those things. And then I went to the bridge and I jumped. <laughs> Dude, that's so matter of fact. It just said to do these, and so I did those things, and then I was base jumping. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here! So you're totally self-taught. No, or you I, were to- learned, self-taught in the I beginning. I learned from Walt Appel's instruction <laughs> article off from that was printed on a dot matrix printer with the tear away paper on the, the edges on the paper, the, <laughs> and I. Did I did test jump it. I took my skydiving rig, which was appropriate. I had a seven cell F-111 Fury, which was appropriate for the time. And I took the bag off and I got a longer bridle and I went and I skydived with it. And it came up between my legs. I did all the wrong things, you know, like total rookie jumper trying to figure it out. But I tested the system and it opened and it flew. And then I went to the bridge for bridge day in 1995. And if I remember correctly... It was Johnny Utah who was hosting one of the court, one of the educational things that you did before you actually jumped. And there was Avery Badenhop and there was a few others. And they had a couple of little things you had to check off. You had like six boxes you had to check to ensure that you'd done the prep work. And one of them was a packing class. And one of them was talking about exits. One of them talked about the legality. And I just went to each class and, you know, it was five or 10 minute seminar from each person. And I'm like, yep. I showed up here with a seven cell. It's got a bigger pilot chute. It's got a longer bridle and it's out of the bag. I'm good to go. And I put my frap hat on mm-hmm. and I went and did it. Man. 
Man, I'd like to highlight the fact that even though that progression um, sounds a little radical compared to today's standards, uh, that you still skydive the system, which I feel like many people don't do these days. And it seems insane to me that like the first time somebody's flying their parachute is off of a 480 foot object, you know, yeah, it's dumb on a base jump. It's dumb. Stupid and unnecessary. Yeah, right? it's not completely unnecessary. Yeah. Since then, I skydive every single. I will skydive all my base equipment. I will do pattern work at the drop zone. I've developed my base canopy handling skills in the skydiving environment, and I would do so on hop and pops, and specifically challenge myself with a non-traditional pattern. I would do forced approaches. So we'd have a pee pit. And I would put myself in a place where I really wouldn't want to be uh, on a skydiving setup. And say, say I'm upwind and I'm a couple hundred feet up. And now I'm just in, it's really not where you want to be. It's like straight ahead of the target kind of thing, upwind. And now I got to like get back behind it, get down to it quickly. And so I did a lot of jumping like that to learn how to do forced approaches because what I learned in my early days of base jumping, even though I was a, shit hot pilot of the day is I still sucked and I'd smack in all the time and get hurt and do dumb shit. So I'd like to debunk, uh, maybe something, um, that is a common justification for not skydiving your, your setup. And maybe you can give us your expertise here. I think a lot of people believe that if they are a high performance pilot, that they you know, know how to fly a small parachute, that flying a big parachute is, no big deal, easier. And in all senses, uh, they should be able to execute just as well because it's bigger. Well, I think if you had a video, you would have saw my eyes just get real wide because <laughs> that's far from the truth. Big parachutes can be much harder to handle than small parachutes. Uh, the typical skydiving parachute is much more responsive to the inputs of the pilot. So they become more intuitive. The, you know, if I say average parachute that's in the industry, like a 170 or 150 sized parachute that the typical skydiver is going to use, even a 135, somewhere in that middle range, they are way more responsive. And the fact that they're nine cells and they're zero porosity and that they're much more modern airfoils, they do everything we want them to do much better than a base canopy does where a base canopy is it's very well rounded because we really want it to open great we really want it to have excellent heading performance we want the landings to be great but we're willing to sacrifice on how great of a landing how good the parachute is at actually landing for the opening characteristics so even the flight uh characteristics of a base canopy are very limited as far as its total scope we yeah, a lot of any, compromises yeah so we we take away glide we cut away take away a lot of glide we take away a lot of flare performance in order to choose a wing design that's going to fit, check all of the boxes kind of right down the middle it's going to be good at everything, but not exceptional at any. And if it's exceptional at anything, it's opening. That's what we want them to be great at is opening performance. So 
I'd say landing performance is very poor on most base canopies relative to say a skydiving parachute where there's so much lift that you, you know, you well, thanks for uh, adding that opinion in because I think it's important to, for people to hear from like a legitimate, uh, canopy pilot and an educator that it is not just wholesale easier to upsize that, you know, there are a lot of hard things about flying a, you know, a large parachute accurately. And especially when you get into an area that's got hazards and if you're underestimating like how easy it can be, then man, I mean, you do one flare wrong at the bridge and you roll your ankle and break your ankle, you know, that's, that's going to be a pretty substantial thing that you're going to have to come back from. And it only takes like a little bit of time to, you know, go out to the drop zone and test your shit and avoid that entirely. Yeah. You can think about it like the analogy of if you drive a typical car, say you've got like a Honda Accord, that's a kind of an everyday driver. That's a pretty easy car to manage, right? Like they're very balanced and they work really well. If you get a sports car, it's a lot more sensitive. So, you know, a high performance canopy, like a sub 100 square foot canopy would be a sports car. A Honda Accord, maybe like a 135 or 150. But if you suddenly jump into a big truck, <laughs> okay, this is a different piece of machinery to operate and you need a skill set to be able to operate that just because it's bigger doesn't mean that it's easier. You have to know how to back that thing up. It might even have a trailer on it kind of thing. And you know, the, how, how long it takes to slow down and how slow it is to speed up and how it goes around corners. All those things are really complex relative to the Honda Accord that you've been scooting around in every day, running to go get groceries. So you don't just jump into another vehicle and think you've got the skill to, to make it just, yeah, yeah, I'll be fine because it's bigger. Uh, no, <laughs> that's a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. You can't just go from sports car to, to semi truck and just think that it's all going to work out. No. So, um, we want to, I want to move on from, uh, parachuting and a little bit into like culture of base. Uh, but before I go, I kind of want to just, uh, give you one last question about, uh, canopy flight, because that's really why we brought you on is to talk about that. And I know that you might be biased on this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you believe that skydiving and base jumping are more canopy sports or more free fall sports? First, I'm going to say I'm biased on everything that you asked me because you're asking for an opinion. Of so course. absolutely biased. And they're free fall sports. Okay. Free fall sports. Um, are they like, is the skill set, which, which skill set is is there a skill that's more important? Is it more important to be an excellent canopy pilot in both of these or an excellent free faller in both of these? It's more important to be an excellent canopy pilot. Okay. Why? Because your chances of dying because of losing control and free fall are virtually zero. Boom. Okay. Thank you for that. I feel like this is one of the main points that I wanted to bring out in the whole podcast is that these are like th the necessary skill set is canopy piloting. And yet both of these sports, base jumping and skydiving, do not focus on that education at all. Like the difference between uh, what is being taught at like flight one for, you know, canopy uh, piloting versus what is the standard in those sports is so vastly different that it's embarrassing. Like the, the sport, like you said, um, is you know, a good decade and a half behind what the power curve is. And, and when you eventually get, you know, the, the new jumper, when you eventually get to base jumping, you're going to need that modern knowledge. You cannot exist functionally in base jumping. You cannot survive and come out of this thing uninjured with information that is 15 years old. It just won't work. 
I have to jump in and just say I have to credit the static line program for my progression of the first thing you learn to do is fly the parachute. You learn, you exit the aircraft, the parachute opens immediately. You're on a static line. It's like the second you get out, boom, parachute's open. There's no free fall involved. So there's no attention put on free fall skills in the static line program. All the attention is put on canopy flight, but there was no actual training curriculum around the canopy flight. You're just learning it ad hoc. So you're learning it through immersion, but you're forced to learn how to fly the parachute before you get to learn how to free fall. And free falling is highly stimulating. It is super fast. It's super intense. It's way fun, but it should come after learning how to fly the parachute. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's easier to market that and certainly easier for the drop zone to manage because you don't have canopies all over the place. You just have people coming down the AFF progression while it's good is like mostly just really effective for business, but we do just, we can't, I know we can't get into that, but I just love the fact that you said it's all about marketing, right? (laughs) You're marketing it so that you can get the person to commit to actually going towards something. Oh my God, what a horse, not put their best interest at the front of the line. That's a whole other podcast that we could get into and we may, um, but I want to close out on, on culture and, and, and our like, you know, based on the community. Um, you are one of the like organizers, one of the, uh, most prominent people in the, you know, in the, I I'd say it's not just a party scene, but it's a community scene. Um, and yeah. And what I want to ask first, because I feel like this last Vegas party, some people didn't quite get this concept, right? Uh, what does sky family actually mean? What, what is the sky family? Okay, so I don't know that I've ever tried to summarize that before, but let me take my best stab at it here because Jimmy and I actually spent some time talking about it. So if I pull my thoughts back to that, the Sky family is anybody and everybody who has put a life in the sky and learning to spend their lives in this world of flight, unpowered flight at the top of their priority list. Like I'm going to do this. Okay. Everybody who's done that and accepted its boundaries and accepted everybody else who's doing that or has done that or who wants to do that. Okay. That's so- sky to family. Sky family is anyone that has uh, put a goal of being in the in the air. Anyone that uh, wants to uh, skydive, parachute. Anyone that is currently doing it. How about is there space for uh, the loved ones of those people? Absolutely. The fa- it's his family. If family is like, if I have extended family, you know, my cousin is still my family, even if they are not here where I live. You know, if I, they don't go work at the same place that I work at, they don't have the same daily routine, they might have a different belief set than I have, but they're still my family. So the Sky family extends to everybody who's emotionally invested into the lives of people who choose to spend their lives in the sky. And that's one of the things that kind of bummed me out on this last Vegas party, which was the last one, right? Yeah. So... By the request of Marta, you know, Marta and Jimmy had founded the 
Vegas Sky Family reunions, starting with the convention in 2014, and they've been a biannual event, and they both had really put in the blood, sweat, and tears to, to make it happen for everybody in the community, and I'm just honored to have been able to been invited by Jimmy to participate in organization, and honored so much to been able to help facilitate the last event in his honor with his passing, and you know, I'll definitely, you know, when I brought the topic to the conversation with Marta she she said no this is the last one of these and that's not to say that we won't have other or there won't be more to follow there won't be something else but that'll be the last Vegas event and for anyone that has heard about this event and just thinks that it's just an excuse to rage like which I mean it's yeah wrong right it was it was initially uh, brought up or, or created by Jimmy to be the non-memorial memorial because in the early 2000s, the 2000 teens, you know, we were doing all of these events for people that had gone in and it was a super bummer that we were like, you know, throwing these awesome parties for the guest of honor who'd never showed up. And so he's like, look, every two years, we're just going to show up in Vegas, which is a really easy place for everyone to get internationally. And we're going to throw the memorial party that we would, uh, but no one's going to go in. It's just going to be a, an opportunity for all of us to commute. And, and you really hit the nail on the head with that by saying nobody's going to go in because he literally made it a rule by saying, hey, there's no base jumping, no skydiving, no air sports occurring while we're at this event. This is a family gathering in which we actually stop the pursuit of flight and enrich our connection to our family and spend time because so many of us are so passionate about our uh, passionate about our pursuits that we're willing to sacrifice a lot of really you know uh, important things and that includes connection to other and time with others and family and stopping base jumping for three days so that we can actually just spend time together and grieve together that's really important to recognize that we're going to stop what we're doing long enough to take time to grieve. And we're in how little is three days when you're talking about grieving. I mean, come yeah. on. I mean, spend 25 years grieving for somebody, you know? And so I really wanted to ask you about sky family and what that means because it's who is invited to these parties and these community events. And in this last Vegas party, I heard a lot of people, uh, excluding folks because they didn't base jump or they weren't base jumping now, or they didn't do this or they didn't do that. And it's like, man, like this is the last event that we're going to have that is the non-memorial memorial. Right. And, you know, to exclude somebody who has investment, like you said, in the community, whether they're doing the sport or not sounded just so unacceptable. Yeah. I think that's just a form of judgment, you know, of like what qualifies somebody to be somewhere. Uh, to me, it's, I, I hold a value very high that is inclusion. And I've learned that through my experience with Burning Man and with all the mentors that I've been so honored to have received mentorship from. That inclusion is what we all want. And what we all really desire is that deeper connection that to want to be included. And these events, I think the only marker there that like tips the scale one way or the other is it's not just a, they're not just a rager for like, let's go and just dance and get high and party and get drunk and, and whatever, Uh, you know, and not to say that those things don't happen for certain people while they're there. They certainly don't happen for everybody. They, the people who choose to do that, choose to do that. 
and yeah, there's music and dancing and celebration, but that is a culturally significant choice to celebrate life while we have it and to celebrate the lives of those who have left us. And the only caveat to that, like, you know, who do we invite category is we invite those who know that this is about respect for everybody involved. It's about respect for the people who are no longer with us and honoring those who have who have left. And it's about honoring the loved ones and the family of those who are still here because they're still in a lot of pain and they're suffering the losses that they have had. The, they're suffering the perception of loss more accurately. So if you're on the outside of this and... You know, you felt like either imposter syndrome when you're at one of these community events or you haven't been invited or you feel like it's hard to break in. You just heard it from like one of the main organizers themselves about what these things are about. You know, if you're uncomfortable with drug usage, that's not what they're about. If if you think that, you know, you're not, you don't belong because you're not currently doing all this extreme shit, then, you know, please reframe that because it's, it's not the case. And I, okay, so that being said, I want to leave with um, your opinions of the culture. The kind of two-part question here is: How have you seen the party scene and the community and the culture and like change for better and worse over the years? And what would you like to see our culture change as it moves forward? And how would you like to see us like, well? What, is, what are some of the things you'd like us to change moving forward? What are some of the things you'd like to see us keep from the past? Yeah. Well, I'm really quite honored that you would even ask me that. So thank you for that. I feel like what I've seen happen, and which this is, I consider this a positive, is that it's not just about getting rad. It's not about who can do the craziest thing, the most flips or pull the lowest or fly the most aggressive wingsuit line. Uh, Who cares, man? It's just not what it's about. What it's about is connection and helping each other on our paths. And we've spoken about this to some degree in our recent chat on walking each other home is that's what's really happening. What's really happening is we're bumping into like-minded souls who have somewhere in their crazy mind decided that they're going to go learn to fly and that they're going to do it off cliffs or buildings or bridges or planes or hillsides or whatever. They're going to they're gonna go fly and they're going to use nylon and strings and Sometimes they're going to pack it. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just going to wear a suit, whatever. People are pursuing freedom of their soul. They're looking to feel oneness with the present moment. They're looking to let go of the context of mortality that we've been told that we live in from our very beginning of our lives. And they just want to feel infinite and free and fly like a bird and let go of all of these constructs. And we're here to support each other on that journey. And that's what I see the culture. And that's what I see the Vegas event 
being about is about supporting each other on that journey. And I'm really happy to see the, how the community has evolved into a community where in, and I'll say this with having been there prior to the existence of the internet, the base jumping community only really got together at bridge day or any other similar events, which were few and far between. And it meant running into each other and yeah, we're full of stoke and you're full of energy and there's probably some jumping going on. So we're probably jacked with adrenaline and there's probably going to be a celebration or a party because we just had a great event. Hopefully nobody's gotten hurt or killed. Probably somebody got hurt because it's a rough sport, but the community has really evolved from these little segmented pockets, which were very isolated all around the world to a global community where it doesn't matter where you're from. My base family is from Australia, South Africa, all over Europe, Norway, all over the USA. Like it just spans the entire globe, you know? So that connective, supportive, non-judgmental and looking out for each other, really looking out for each other is what it's all about. And, giving each other the, the chance, the freedom to make our own mistakes and hopefully nudge us in the right direction if we're going too far off the rails. Yeah. I feel you. Okay. So from a community that was very fragmented to eventually a community that is incredibly cohesive, the changes that you'd like to see continue being made are inclusion and support, um, non-judgment, and for everyone to start you know, building an actual community rather than just being individuals who enjoy the same sport. Community of clarity. Oh, cool. Well, uh, the podcast that you had mentioned earlier is walking each other home, uh, which is JMO's uh, podcast. We'll send, uh, we'll put links in our uh, bio for it. Also uh, flight one is really easy to find. We'll link it as well so that you can uh, continue to engage with JMO and all the other folks when it comes to canopy flight. And uh, JMO, man, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. We really appreciate you sharing your experience and knowledge. Uh, it's a pleasure to chat with you, Matt. And, uh, you know, we were touching on all my passion points. So I'm sitting in the SBK office, you know, here, one of the homes of base jumping and uh, just love good times with nylon. Heck yeah, man. <laughs> See you on the exit point, Jay. See you on the exit point, Matt. Thanks for joining us for another episode. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, we would love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram at exitpoint.podcast. Big shout out to Mark Stockwell, our sound mixer and co-producer for being part of this project. Tune in next time or come find us on the exit point.